got it. The reading for today is from John 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as that they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Caitlin. All right, church. All right, so good morning again. Our regular teaching pastor, Frank, is out today. He's actually here. Where are you, Frank? There you go. Here he is. Uh, it was his birthday this week. But, yeah, yeah. So make sure you wish him happy birthday. That's not why he's not up here this morning, though. For his birthday, his doctor gave him a shoulder surgery. So happy birthday to Frank. Um, so he's recovering. I think everything went well, yeah? Okay. So you'll be seeing him in that shoulder brace for the next few weeks. So just be praying for him. That recovery process can be a pain, no pun intended, but it'll take a while, and uh, so we'll make sure we pray for him. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 1 through 18 today. So we've got a few verses to get through. We as a church are in the season of Lent that began on Ash Wednesday, and what, what we gave out on Ash Wednesday were these kind of booklets that are made as a prayer guide for you through this season. And what I love about this, our team worked so hard on it, Malia in particular, um, this has made it to be a guide for you to prepare our hearts for Easter. That's why we're doing it. And we're only a couple weeks into it, so if you're still interested, it's not too late to grab one and jump in with us. Um, there are plenty at the Connect Desk. We'd love to get you one of those. Um, but we've got just a chapter and a half, if you can believe it, left of John. We started in August of 2020. That's how long we've been in the book of John. We, of course, we had Nehemiah in the middle of it, if you remember. We did countercultural convictions also, and, uh, you know, our, our regular Easter and Advent breaks. But this today, funny enough, is John's Easter passage, the resurrection. You might be wondering, this is kind of a weird timing, right? Like, why are we covering John's Easter passage? Can we, like, space that different? Well, apparently not. It just lined up that way, which is fine. But I hope I'm going to be able to highlight some things that maybe we haven't seen before in this passage. But it's a good excuse to talk about Easter this year. Uh, we started this last year calling it Resurrection Weekend. And the thinking there is that this is not just about the resurrection, but it's a weekend-long liturgy that begins on Friday with the crucifixion. And for us on Saturday, we've done an egg hunt, which we're doing again this year. And then also on Sunday is obviously Easter Sunday. So we're inviting you, the church, and anyone else to come to Resurrection Weekend. Let me talk about some of the, the imagery going on here. Um, it kind of has that creation, what's that painting? Creation of, uh, you looked it up yesterday, Creation of Adam painting. Anyway, um, what, we, what we thought was in Matthew 27, 25, Jesus is being interrogated, right? And Pilate says to the people, he washes his hands, and he says, I wash my hands of this, his, uh, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And what do the people say in response? His blood be on us and on our children. Which they had no idea exactly what they were saying, but, but really when you think about it, there's two ways to receive that statement. For the Christian, it's like a victory cry for us. His blood covers us, washes us. This is that resurrection passage. Or it's a condemnation. His blood is on your hands. It's our sin that put him on the cross. So there's a natural connection there between Good Friday and Easter, hence the imagery. The blood coming down from the hand of Christ is, is being grasped by us, so to speak, reaching up for that redemption. So what you can look forward to is next week, we're going to have some handouts for you to just get you all the information and all of that. But I want you to think about this week 
Who are a couple of people that you could reach out to and invite to Resurrection Weekend, whether they just come on, on Sunday or, or not? But who are a couple people that maybe you can prayerfully consider your neighbors or your coworkers? So the hope is that next week you grab two or three or four of these and just prayerfully consider who you might want to invite. So take this week and, and think about that. Let me pray. Let's pray for Frank and let's pray for this service. God, we thank you for Frank. Thank you for uh, his birthday. I pray that that was restful for him. Um, but we pray, God, for a quick and speedy recovery and that you give his heart um, peace and rest in the midst of this next six weeks of being able to do a little bit less, um, help him to be wise with what he does and doesn't do. And God, pray that you'd provide for him and give him a quick healing for our service today. God, as I prayed earlier, um, we, can, we can read your word. Um, I can unpack your word some, but it's you that's got to water it. It's you that gives the growth. Just like a farmer can put a seed in the ground and give it everything it needs to grow, but the farmer can't physically make that seed grow. So we need you for that, Holy Spirit. So would you take the seed of the word today and, and grow it up into something beautiful in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump into verses 1 and 2 together. Read with me. Chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So notice a couple of things right off the bat. Notice the fast action all of a sudden, right? There's a lot of running, that this happened, this happened, and I ran to this person. The action's going to kind of pick up, okay? And notice, if this is John's resurrection passage, what's missing right away? The actual resurrection happens off camera, so to speak, right? The last we read, he was buried, and now here he is, and the tomb is empty. Wait, is there, is there a chapter missing? What's going on here? A lot of the action in this passage happens off camera, so to speak. So we'll talk more about that. But Mary Magdalene is a central figure to this passage here today. So what can we know about her? One, she was a real historical figure, not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's a different Mary. And not to be confused with Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is the one who comes before Jesus and breaks the oil over his feet and washes his feet with her tears and her hair, this like really intimate picture. Not Mary of Bethany, not Mary the mother of Jesus. Basically, Mary was the equivalent of Tyler back then. There's just a lot of Marys running around, just like there's a lot of Tylers <laughs> running around over here. In many traditions, Mary Magdalene is a heroine of the faith. She's, in others, a venerated saint. Mary is an important figure. There's a lot of fiction written about her as well, even early church fiction, about the nature of her relationship with Jesus, even being a sexual one, even in marriage. There's a lot of false narratives about her. The Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, and others. There's even a Gospel of Mary Magdalene. All of these throughout time have been filtered out of what's considered scripture, because they either disagree clearly with historical fact or are not seen to be, to be helpful for the Christian. And so they've been filtered out and resoundingly proven to be works of fiction. In the Gospels, however, we have two main scenes involving this Mary of Magdalene, uh, Mary Magdalene. And so we have those in Luke 8, Mark 16, and here in John 20. Let's look at the Luke 8 passage. It'll be up on the screen as well for you. And I'm going to read that. Luke 8. Verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. That's the disciples. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. So three things we learn right away about Mary Magdalene here 
is one that Mary Magdalene traveled with Jesus. She wasn't counted as one of the 12, but you could consider all of the the things in the Gospels where Jesus is traveling, you you could consider her there also. She was from a small nearby fishing village called Magdala, hence the name, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary Magdalene. Second thing we learned from that was that she was delivered, apparently, from seven demons, which is a lot of demons. That's a lot of demons, okay? So admittedly, I'm going to sidestep that issue this morning, Um, not because I'm not sure what to do with that. I think it's pretty clear, but exactly what's being meant is is less clear. Whether or not that means literally seven demons came out of her, or I think seven is a clue. It's often used in scripture to hint at the idea of completion or fullness. Maybe it's saying she was completely given over to demonic oppression. In the limited vocabulary of mental health back then, sometimes mental health disorders were even interpreted as demonic oppression. You can see that as like a whole can of worms that I'm just going to put to the side. But here's what I'll say. Demonic oppression is real. The Bible teaches it. It's, it's factual. And mental health is important. I would really want to take time to unpack a biblical ethic of that in, in, a, in a separate sermon one day. But here's what we can confidently say about this information, that Mary was delivered from demonic oppression. Mary Magdalene experienced profound healing and deliverance by Jesus. No matter what exactly is happening there, and personally I'd land more on the demonic oppression side, I think that's what it's probably saying, but we can agree that she experienced profound healing and deliverance by Jesus. And what this did was created a unique devotion in Mary Magdalene to Jesus. She was freed from this huge burden, unimaginable burden, and followed Jesus with a devoted teacher-student kind of love relationship. Third thing we learned was that she was probably at least moderately wealthy because she clearly supported Jesus in his work throughout his ministry. So she was present, just in review. She was present for most, if not all, of Jesus's traveling ministry. She experienced profound deliverance by Jesus and was a financial supporter of Jesus. We're getting a pretty good picture of who Mary Magdalene is already. John and the other Gospels tell us that she was also present for Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and here at his resurrection. So we can know that she was faithful, she was devoted, loving, and a lot of commentators say this, that she was courageous. You might say, well, why? Okay, why courageous? Well, think about it. If the, if the person you're following is being murdered in front of you, don't you think there's a chance that you might also be swept up in that? So the fact that she remained at his crucifixion shows us also something of her character. I think she's showing incredible courage. Another, another thought was that it could be just shrewdness or wisdom there because as a woman, she would have been less likely to be treated harshly by the guards. So that's possible too. And so through these few passages, we can learn a lot about her devotion to Jesus. And my, repeat, my repeated prayer for us this morning is that God would make us devoted like Mary, that God would make us love Jesus in that way. So Mary came to Jesus' tomb early. Notice the language was, it was still dark. I think that's much more than just the sun hadn't risen, but the son of God had risen, hasn't risen. Little pun there for you, okay. Jesus came, uh, Mary came to Jesus' tomb early, saw it was empty, ran to tell Peter and John, verses three through eight. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Now, other disciple, that's John. He's talking about himself. Listen to how he writes this. I found this really funny. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple himself, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He really wants you to know that he was faster than Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a sec. Then Simon Peter came all out of breath, finally got there, following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple, again, John reminds you just one more time, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, lest we forget, also went in and he saw and believed. Notice that language, he saw and believed. Now, I think what's happening is the detail about who's faster is funny, but it's probably just actually true. John was thought to be younger than Peter, so just Peter's age, age caught up with him and he wasn't as fast. But what's interesting there that John didn't go in a lot of people think that that's John showing deference to Peter being his senior leader in the group. Peter was, was like Jesus' right-hand guy there. So John, they think, got to the tomb early, peeked in but didn't go in and waited for Peter. Remember, they have a close relationship. They love each other. They're not like just in competition, but maybe, maybe a little competitive. So when they go in, they expect to see the body of Jesus. And what they find instead is folded linens. Isn't that interesting? It's an indication that it wasn't a simple grave robbery. Uh, no robber would, would put the house back together when he's done and just neatly tuck your bed sheets in and all of that, right? They're going to take what they want and they're going to go. They would have taken the wrappings with Jesus. They wouldn't have unwrapped him at all. So it's not a simple grave robbery. What, what he's hinting at is that Jesus rose, unwrapped the cloths, folded up his face cloth, and then walked out. John's beginning to unpack factual evidence in his mind that this really happened. This is a historical thing. Now, I mentioned that he saw and believed. Remember at the end of verse 8? So you might think, you might hear that and think, okay, is, is it like a spiritual thing? Like he, he saw and he really believed. Well, I think what's happening is that he's seeing for himself that Jesus' body was not there, and he believes Mary, that his body's gone. And I think we know that because the next two verses, let's read those, 9 and 10. So at the end of that, he saw and believed, verse 9, for as yet they, Peter and John, did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So you see what I mean? It, it seems like he believed Mary, but he didn't yet understand the full weight of the scripture uh, of the things that Jesus had been saying to them. He said, when we go back and read, he says so clearly, guys, I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. They heard that and went, is that figurative? What's he doing there? I don't know. Let's just like meditate on that. And then when they see it, they go, I don't know. What, what is happening? This is weird. His body's gone. It's so strange. So notice the word, too, that he must rise from the dead. Isn't that an interesting choice? They didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He must rise. Why such strong language there? Why is it so important? Why do Christians make such a big deal about this resurrection thing? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 will do that work for us. It'll give us the answer. If you can, turn there. And if you can't, just listen. Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, pointless, and you are still in your sins. Then, all the, then, all, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died are just dead. There's nothing else there. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if all our hope hinges on our current life here on earth, we are of all people to be most pitied. Paul is using such strong language here. And then he goes on, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, he's talking about Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's why the strong language there. If Jesus was not raised, then he was just a good guy who died, and that's the end. We have no payment for our sin without the cross, and we have no hope without the resurrection. The resurrection secured the work of Christ 
on the cross for us. But John and Peter, with John clearly the faster runner of the two, they don't quite get that yet. And I understand why. It's pretty unbelievable. Mary comes in and says, Jesus raised from the dead. Think about that. that it's unbelievable. So they saw for themselves that at least Jesus' body was gone, was really gone, without understanding yet that he was in fact risen. I think this is more evidence that John isn't making up this story. It's like he's describing these things as they're happening. He's admitting, I was pretty ignorant. I totally missed it. What author does that? You wouldn't write yourself into a book like that. You'd be like, and I got it. I was faster and I fully understood. <laughs> but after seeing, they believed that, they, that Mary was telling the truth that the body was gone, which is kind of strange, right? Doesn't it seem messed up that they don't believe Mary? Well, at the time, and I know it's not great, the word of women was not generally regarded. In a courtroom, it would not have been given as, as a single woman's um, eyewitness account. It wouldn't have been regarded as, as fact or truth. So then how, how is that further evidence then? Well, if you were making up a story about Jesus being raised from the dead, you wouldn't write it this way. You would say, such and such respected male leaders in the community saw this and they verified it and it's backed up. And that, as this word was spread, would have been more easily believed. But once they saw it for themselves, they believed Mary. The disciples went back to their homes and said, now, remember who's waiting at John's home? Remember Jesus on the cross as he was hanging there? He looked at John and Mary and he said, behold your mother, behold your son. Remember he, he gave care of his mother to John. So John's going back home where Jesus' mother, Mary, is to tell her the news, your, your son's body is gone. But Mary didn't go. She remained. Let's read verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary gives a straight answer. She's being asked by, we, we don't know exactly if she recognizes them as angels or thinks that they're just guards with a really white, clean outfit or something. But think of the boldness of that, even, to say they've taken my Lord away. If they were guards, they would have known who was buried there. So she boldly and simply says, they've taken my Lord away. Again, my prayer is that God would give us, like Mary, that same boldness. That our hearts wouldn't be so overwhelmed by the waters of fear, but that we would be simple and bold in our faith. Now, let's not miss the emotion of the moment, too. Mary remains, she lingers, and she weeps. She weeps. Because of her great love for Jesus. Because of the injustice that was just done against her Lord. Now consider for a moment, this could have left her heart bitter and hard and jaded and angry. But we don't have any indication of that. We have an indication of a person who is broken. She has every reason to hate and grow cold at the world who killed her Savior. But we have every indication she was just broken not bitter. And again, my prayer is that God would make our hearts soft like that. How easy is it to grow a hard and cold heart? So easy. Towards your spouse, your kids, those you love, your neighbor, so easy. You have to do very little to get a hard heart over time. They've taken away the body of her Lord. That's all she knows. And she remains after Peter and John left and her waiting is greatly rewarded. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So John the narrator is letting us in a little bit about something that Mary doesn't know on exactly what's going on here. We don't know exactly why she doesn't recognize him. You would think she would, right? Because she's followed him so closely all these years. And now, whether it's maybe the disfigurement of the last time she saw him was when he was bloodied and bruised and swollen and and dead, or whether her eyes were too puffy and filled with tears to see clearly, or maybe Jesus just somehow hides his identity from her. But she doesn't recognize him. She thinks it's the gardener. And the gardener would have been more like the groundskeeper of that area. They would know if a body was moved, they would know why or where it went or things like that. So it makes sense why she would ask him that. I find it interesting, too, that Jesus first says to her the same thing that the angels did. Woman, why are you crying? And I just have two quick thoughts why. It could be simply just genuine concern. You see someone crying, you go, hey, you okay? Why are you crying? I also think there's an element of like, she doesn't yet see what's happening. And the angels and obviously Jesus do, they realize, why are you crying on such a wonderful day like this? Or it could be just to highlight the different reaction that Mary gives to the very next verse. Let's read. And before we do, just to remind you, in John 10, we we talked about Jesus as the great shepherd. Here's verses three through four about the great shepherd. It says this, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now there must have been something different in the tone of Jesus's next words to Mary. Let's read 16 through 18. Jesus says to her simply, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Hope sparked in her when she heard her name. Just like so many times before, and instantly, she knew that voice. Just like the sheep in John 10. Now, am I the only one who kind of wants to know where Jesus was hiding that whole time? It seems like, seems like he was raised and then went off into the garden, maybe in the bushes. I don't know. I'm filling it in a little bit. But maybe he saw Peter and John coming and going, sees Mary waiting, and then comes out. That's just where my brain goes. Again, something important happens off camera. He says her name, and then the next thing he says is, don't cling to me. So clearly, off camera, she clings to him. When he says her name, she clings to him. Now, notice, again, I just feel like I need to clarify this relationship here. It's teacher-student. Notice her response is, is not, my love. It's my teacher. This is a teacher-student relationship. The other Gospels give us a really powerful clue here on this kind of embrace. Matthew 28, verse 9 describes she is at the feet of Jesus, embracing his feet. This is no ordinary embrace. This is worship. She's under no false pretenses about where she stands with Jesus. She's loved, but he's still God in the flesh. And this is the right response to the risen Jesus. Worship. My prayer again, God, give us a heart of worship for you. Not just our admiration. She doesn't just admire him. She worships him. She loves him with abandon. I want our church to love Jesus that way. I want my heart to love Jesus that way. Now, when Jesus says, don't cling to me, he's not just like prying her off, okay? Another way you can interpret that is to say, don't keep holding on to me. I've got a job to do. I need you to do something for me. Parents can relate to that, like, clingy kid, right? That's not what's happening. She's worshiping him, and, but he has a job for her to do. She is to be his first messenger. Think about that. She's the first one who sees him raised, And now she is his first messenger. 
He sends her out with a message, even to the disciples. Go and tell them. This is a really, really important thing. He says, go tell my disciples that I'm on my way to the throne. I'm ascending to God. Notice all the familial language, to my God and your God, my father and your father. He's saying, my resurrection has secured your sonship to God. And Mary immediately obeys the Lord. Now, two things. One, I want to unpack Mary's example for us today and just kind of round out what we've learned about her because there are things worth imitating in the life of Mary. And two, I want to return back to the garden scene and we'll close with the garden scene. So first, Mary Magdalene was saved from demonic oppression, used her wealth to support Jesus' work, was a devoted follower of Jesus, was a witness to his life and death and burial, resurrection over and over. She remained. When all others fled away, she remained, was present. She knew the voice of her shepherd and obeyed the Lord. She gave her worship, her whole self, to his teaching. So three things from Mary Magdalene's example for us today that we would go where Jesus goes. Go where Jesus goes and do it out of your love for him. Experience his freedom from the oppression of sin and simply be a witness. Go where he goes and witness his work in you and in the world. Second thing, use your life and your resources to support his work and mission. Not just witnessing, but obeying his words, and even more, being a messenger in all that you do. Three, like Mary, be the one who remains, even when others flee. Not all the disciples were at the crucifixion scene. Some had fled away, but Mary remained. Wait on him, church. Be willing to linger. This could take bravery. This could take boldness to remain. Another way to say this, be faithful. Like Frank has been preaching to us the last number of weeks, church, we need to get used to the idea of exile, of being on the margin in culture. Get used to that feeling. In other words, as Luke 10, 27 tells us, this is Mary's example, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Mary shows us. It's something that's taught all throughout Scripture, but Mary shows us that example of a life submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. I want to be more like that. I want our church to be more like that. Now lastly, back to the garden. In verses 15 and 16, we learn that this scene all happens in a garden. Think about that. Our Bible begins in a garden where the first Adam walked with God. John begins his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? That's how Genesis starts, in the beginning. John is building a narrative throughout his gospel, which I believe culminates here in this glorious resurrection, majority of it happening off camera moment, where Jesus stands resurrected. Another name for Jesus is the new Adam, or the second Adam. Because where Adam, where the first Adam failed and brought sin into the world, Jesus finished God's work and made a way for the world to be reconciled to God through him. He's a new Adam because a new creation comes from him, the church, you and I. From Adam's side, God created Eve to be his bride. John 19, 34 tells us that when Jesus died and his side was pierced, out from his side came blood and water, the blood which pays our debt, the water which washes us clean. Ephesians 5 tells us that you and I are the new Eve. We are the new Eve. We are the church of God. His people together are his bride. Here's why that's a powerful image. Ephesians 5 goes on to say this about Jesus' bride. 
It's talking about husbands and wives, but bear with me. Husbands, love your wives. Here we go. As Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. Eve, the new Eve, her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And now here's his work in the church. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The resurrection of God gives us real and lasting hope. That God, that first, that God is at work in us, his bride, washing us, sanctifying us, making us free of any blemish, perfect. And the reason that gives us hope is because we can have confidence that he's doing that. He's at work in that. The second thing that gives us hope is the reality that one day we all will die and be with him. And the Bible teaches that we will experience a resurrection like his, that Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. It's hard to imagine exactly what that will be like, but scripture teaches it. Here's the point. We will not always be weighed down with sin and sorrow and suffering and depression and anxiety and fear. One day God will make us new, wipe away every tear. We will, church, be made whole. And we will be his forever. And in the meantime, we can follow Mary's example of devotion to this now risen Jesus. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the power of your resurrection. I don't consider it enough. But Lord, that Corinthians passage just rang in my ears this week. That without your resurrection, this is all vain. You were just a good guy who died, but thank you, God, that you're not. You were raised to new life. And with you, all of our hopes were raised also. So for those, those experiencing the frailty of this life this week, God, I pray that you would spark in them a hope, a new and fresh and real hope. For those in, our, in the room today who would be blessed enough to say they're not experiencing suffering. God, prepare our hearts for the suffering that is to come. It's one of the promises that we have. Suffering will come, but we don't suffer like those without hope. And it's because of your resurrection. So God, we pray that we, your church, would hear your word and respond to your word that we be encouraged and lifted up in this hope. So God, exactly how that affects us this week, exactly how we bring that hope into our workplaces and communities and families, Holy Spirit, I trust you to do that work in our hearts. Show us, God, open our eyes, help us to see. Make us more like you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So at this time, we respond as a church, and we do that in a few ways. We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing. If you're prepared to give, now's the time you could do that as well. There's giving boxes in the back. There's going to be people up here standing ready to pray with you, some of our deacons and elders and pastors, so I hope you take them up on a chance to pray. I say this almost every time, but coming up for prayer doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with you or whatever. Uh, nobody's going to watch and judge or, or whatever. Uh, we all need prayer. We really do. Part of what God has done in this church, his bride, is given us a safe place to be broken, to not always have to be okay. So we all need prayer. So I hope you'll come and pray with us. As we take communion, I just want to encourage you to take your time, pray, I also love that our church does this together. Think about, this isn't just an individual thing. This is a church body thing. We come together and remember collectively Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us. And it was for my sin. It was for your sin. But we do that with the hope of the resurrection 
on our minds and in our hearts. So let's receive communion when you're ready. Let's sing, let's give, and let's pray.
Amen. This morning we have a responsive benediction. So I'm going to read three verses, and at the end of each verse, you will say, we also will be raised. So can you say that now? We also will be raised. Romans 6.4 says this, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Since the Father raised Jesus from the dead, we also will be raised. John 2.19 says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Since Jesus raised himself from the dead, we also will be raised. Romans 8.11 says this, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If the same Holy Spirit lives in you, he will give life to your bodies in the same way. Since the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, we also will be raised. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.